Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief at the New Books Network, and just a warning about the following interview. We had a bad phone connection, and so the audio is a little bit rough. But in any case, I hope that you enjoy the interview. Here it is. Good day, and welcome to New Books and South Asian Studies, hosted by Dara Anjaria out of Bombay, India. It's a long way from Bombay to the Uzbek capital, Tashkent, but not so long that the British in India weren't worried about the Russian presence out there. Not much that they could do about it, though. Once Mikhail Chernyayev conquered Tashkent in 1865, the Russians set about building a colonial city as complete as any you might see across the Indus, with railways, government buildings, native bazaars, and a bunch of people all often wanting very different things and living in very different ways. What bound them was that they were all a part of Russia's colonizing drive in Central Asia. Jeff Sahadev, Associate Professor of European, Russian and Eurasian Studies at Ottawa's Carleton University, is going to talk to us about life in Russian Tashkent. In between setting up grandiose edifices, parlaying with the local notables and preventing or trying to prevent outbreaks of cholera, Russians in Tashkent managed to enjoy themselves as well. In the Tashkent of 1883, there were apparently all for Russian use, 12 wine and vodka distilleries, 11 breweries, 7 winemaking enterprises and hundreds of taverns and other drinking establishments and no bookstores, said the outraged writer of that missive. But for all you folks out there today, Jeff's book makes up for that. Um, good morning, Professor Sahadev. Good morning. Um, thank you very much for doing this for the New Books Network, and it's a pleasure to have you talk to us about your book. Oh, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, uh, to start off with, could you tell our listeners something about your academic career to date? Okay, well, I'm an associate professor at Carleton University now. After I got my PhD, I did uh, two years teaching at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville and then moved back home to Canada, uh, where I'm from, and I'm the director now at the Institute of European Russian and Eurasian Studies at Carleton University. And uh, please tell us something about your research today, because you've already done quite a lot of work on Central Asia. Yeah, I've always been fascinated by Central Asia, and uh, the book was my my first major research. I've continued now looking primarily into questions of migration and diaspora, uh, cross-cultural relations between uh, different peoples of Central Asia and Russia, looking a little bit as well now at the Caucasus and trying to understand the way that the North and South and some of these questions of communalism and identity work in the region. Um, so, can you tell us something about how this book grew out of your research and how you came to write it? Okay, yeah, this, this book came really out of a, a desire to understand uh, 
when, when I was going to university, it was when the Soviet Union was collapsing uh, with the Gorbachev era and Perestroika, and we just started to hear about these people, like we respect Tajiks that we had never really heard about too much before. Uh, and when I started to understand not just the nationalism that was coming from the area, but primarily like the economic questions, like the cotton monoculture that the, the Soviets had put into the region, it made me think that these uh, were colonized areas. Uh, having studied a bit on British and French colonialism, I really wanted to understand how Central Asia fit into a more global pattern of, of colonialism. I just became fascinated by the people as well, uh, the culture too, so uh, I was really excited when I got a chance to do a PhD to go to Tashkent to do research on the ground. Uh, and this project evolved from looking at the Soviet period really to, to understand it, Tashkent as it moved from its very beginning after the Russian conflict in 1865. Um, so, okay, the book is about Russian colonial society in Tashkent. So, can you just summarize the book for us, you know, in a nutshell, maybe? Sure. Yeah, the book is a, is a study, an urban study of how uh, colonial state interacts with its colonized population. Really, the complexities of uh, the way power is exercised on the one hand, but certainly Russians across the social spectrum exploited Central Asians in a variety of ways, both uh, formal and informal, but also that colonialism is a very unstable uh, and often ambiguous situation thing, where there were certain people among the Central Asian population that benefited from colonial rule. Uh, a new city grew, it tripled in size, both Russians and Central Asians came in, there were divisions among race and class lines, as well as uh, gender lines as well, so all these kinds of different hierarchies interacted. So what we wanted to do was look at Tashkent as a laboratory for colonial rule and, and to place the city into a global colonial context in the Russian Empire as well. But I argue that uh, Russia was, as France was, really Western imperial power. They're not as unique sometimes as they say that they are. And also, the colonialism uh, was something that the Russians were very interested in, both economic and political, but it, it took its own trajectory. It was very unique, and the Central Asian population also had a trajectory. They weren't just passive uh, victims, but they were actually active players. You just mentioned that it's an urban study, so this is, you could also say that this is a book about how, you know, the urban environment and colonialism interacted with each other. Yeah, I, it was really fascinating when you thought we the story at first, but again, I started thinking about looking at the 1920s and 1930s, but once I started reading the newspapers from the very first Russian conquest in 1865, to really understand how they, they built their own city right next to the Asian city. And to understand how that city grew and developed from the ground up, I just found fascinating. And the way they structured it very consciously from the beginning as a mark of difference. They actually used very telling models. So they used St. Petersburg, and also they were looking at the Paris after 1848 as a model that made the city both a military city, a uh, symbol of European power. And then I started to look at the ways that the neighborhoods developed, and we had a, an Asian city and a Russian city which were separate. But there was also interactions between. So I looked at things like architecture and urban planning. I hadn't really planned to at the beginning, but uh, it just became so important when I looked and I studied how Russians and Central Asians perceived and acted uh, as colonizers and colonizers. Um, so when did the Russians first start coming into Tashkent? 
Well, the Russians uh, conquered in 1865. There had been some relationships before then, but it was really, even when they conquered it, there were very few Russians on the ground. And for the first two or three years, it just had a small military garrison there. Because the Russians weren't really quite sure what to do with it. They conquered it mainly because uh, there was competition with Britain and they, they wanted to gain a certain bit of imperial glory after the Crimean War. And they, they desired to have... Uh, great strength, but they didn't really have any concrete settlement. So the pace of growing started slowly, and we had a beginning of a, uh, a, a sort of settler colony only in the 1880s once the cotton economy started. But after that, it starts to pick up very rapidly. So from no Russians in 1865, we we end up getting about 100,000 by 1917. Uh, lots of peasants coming in to settle there, taking advantage of the economy. Railway workers, once the railway comes, that's a big boost to Ashland's uh, population as well. So it develops quite rapidly uh, in the end. It does become, by the uh, beginning of the century, the largest um, so when the Russians came in, I mean, Tashkent was already a fairly well-developed city. I mean, I do a lot of work on the British in India, the major city of the British in India, you know, they were kind of like created by the British, Bombay, Calcutta, Madras, there wasn't that much of a native metropolitan presence. So this was obviously something that was not the case in Tashkent. So how did these early arrivals, you know, interact with the local city's dynamics? Yeah, yeah it's quite interesting. Of course, the Russians, when they built uh, Tashkent, they were operating on British Indian models and also models of the French used in Algeria and Africa. So they wanted to build their own separate city. But as you say, Tashkent itself is already very established to almost, almost 100,000 people probably at the time. Uh, and what's quite interesting, of course, is that even though the Russians were colonizers, the Central Asians were, were generally far wealthy. And so what you had when the Russian city began operating is that they really relied on the Central Asian population for a lot of the necessities of life. For example, uh, there were Central Asian merchants that were trading with the Russians, and uh, the Russians had to hire Central Asian engineers to build water canals into the Russian city. So there, from the very beginning, this is sort of this strange duality established where clearly the Russians had superior military, military power, but they themselves were conscious of the fact that they were quite dependent on the Central Asian population. That uh, goes through right until 1917, the sense of inferiority and frustration among the Russians that they were still so dependent on what's very advanced uh, city of Tashkent at the time, continues to advance with this Russian situation. Um, so, obviously, the earliest Russians to come in were the military guys. And uh, if you want to fast forward to General Kaufman's time, I mean, could you tell us something about his engagement well, with Russia and Central Asia as a whole? Yeah, Kaufman was the very first uh, <coughs> governor general of the region. His, his plan was not just to make it a military settlement, but really to make it a center of Russian civilization in Asia. So he brought in not just uh, soldiers and also engineers and as well. You started to get people in the military service who were doing things like ethnography, geographers, uh, people who were looking at uh, 
how to advance the land and how to make it really part of a Russian empire that would be uh, seen by St. Petersburg and Moscow as not just an integral part of the Russian empire, but in fact, uh, a leading edge of Russia. There's a chance that we could build a new city with a new population. You wouldn't have the, the historical uh, backwardness that you had in the sort of days in the 19th century. So they built things like museums, like libraries, uh, and they kept agitating for railroads, the trade fairs, and those kinds of things. So really from the 1870s on, there was a sense among the population that they wanted to the elite population. They were building a modern city, a uh, modern colonial city, a modern global city in Central Asia. The problem was is that the Russians in St. Petersburg also saw some illegitimate a city that was full of corruption. A lot of people went there and tried to take money from the center. And there was that duality as well. People who were very advanced and very intellectual were thinking that there were several officers who were, were quite corrupt, and that dynamic was another thing that trusted a lot of people in situation. But obviously it was not just a military and gradually the city came to support a very diverse section of Russian society. So who were all these sections? Who were the main groups of like Russians who were present in Tashkent? Right. Yeah, to start there were uh, primarily, again, the, the first people who went there were, primar- were military officers, but they started to divide as the Tashkent especially became the center for control of the entire region in Turkestan. You had not just military officers who were uh, supervising the soldiers, you had military officers in uh, housing projects, you had military officers who were running the bureaucracy, uh, and then you started to build a, a Tashkent by the city government in 1877, so you had a lot of administrators there. You also had a number of Russian merchants who were coming in the 1870s because they started to gain a very significant presence. Uh, and you start to get then growing numbers of soldiers there, some of whom retired in Tashkent and they became a working force. And then as the continent economy grows and the Russian economy stagnates in the 1880s, you start to get significant numbers of Russian peasants who went there to try and find jobs, try and find, uh, some kind of better life in Tashkent, they ended up living in the industrial suburbs of the city. So, whereas the, the Russian pop from the other stuff, they could build a sort of city wealthier or modern Russians, started getting a lot of the peasants and the dirty Russians who came in, and, and that became explicit within the Russian community as well. Um, you mentioned that there was a lot of conflict between different classes of Russians, especially you mentioned the issue of the railway station as being a site, a contested site. Mm. Yeah, the railway station was one of these sites where, for for decades, the railway comes to Tashkent directly. In 1906, the first station is built, and there's other, there's other sort of railway links essentially a little bit before then. But it was a good few decades after the uh, Russian conquest. Hoffman and others have been saying for decades, you need a railway station, you need to be connected, it will be a, a vital part of the Russian economy. So on the one hand, it was quite popular. But what happened when you got the railway station was you got Russian workers there. And so you didn't then just have the poor Russian workers who were, say, working in uh, rough cotton manufacturing or, or working in the wine factories or something. But the railway workers who came were very skilled workers. And also this was a time of labor trouble in, in the Russian Empire as a whole, of course, as we know from a number of other works. And what ended up happening was a lot of the Russian railway workers who came to Tashkent with people were being exiled from St. Petersburg and Moscow because of their socialist and revolutionary beliefs. So it became a place where you had not just class conflict in terms of the, the origins, but very conscious 
classes developed by railroad workers who believe because of their education claimed a share of power in the city. Therefore, uh, that became, at the beginning of the 20th century, perhaps even a greater uh, worry for colonial administrators than any Central Asian kind of colonial that probably uh, and uh, what about the women? Obviously, they also had a very mixed experience of living in a colonial outpost, I think. Yeah, gender was always a really interesting category. It was one that, in a way, took me a while to get it, because you certainly had, as you have a Christian India, the image of the Russian woman as being a symbol of culture and civilization, and there was an effort to really keep women isolated from uh, population. But at the same time, women, uh, especially the lower class of women, who had to interact more, they had to go shopping, who uh, had to go into daily life, especially because there were a lot of Central Asian merchants and uh, Central Asian water engineers who ran the canals, there was a significant interaction. And one of my most enjoyable parts of the book was when I looked at this woman's wide attachment in 1916, because it was there really for the first time that you were able to get the voices of the women, because these are government. involved in the riot, and they would all up but my friend said that this is what happened, this is what women were so upset. Uh, and many of the women, much of the women were attentive to the fact that they had to go to situation versus the food, and that they were prices. Uh, so there was this huge divide among Russian women and lower class women as well, um, because the lower class women couldn't really afford to isolate their population. Uh, whereas the elite women often would say, well, their lives are very boring in Russian Tashkent because uh, their husbands were always out hunting and birds and smells. So it's an interesting dynamic. The one thing that I saw no evidence of, I really worked hard to sure this happened, was the relationship between Russian women and other formal environments. We see some evidence of that. I think the Russians have very hard to cover up any kind of cross-ethnic relationships because of the required key production of women separate from the population. Well, you would say that uh, Russian women engage the local population on now uh, many different levels. Yes, they did, and, and I think uh, overall, it, it's really complicated. This is one of the reasons why uh, I felt, I wouldn't say frustrated, but when I, if there's ever a case I wanted more sources, it's when I wanted more voices from these people on these sort of daily life encounters, uh, because you get newspapers and things like that who uh, will teach you stories about Central Asian people. Um, of situation life, but they won't tell you about the interaction between the two. So it's really when I got these, uh, and sometimes the reports of crime as well, and uh, there was the issue of prostitution too that was being evicted. So that was another thing that the, the Russian population could recognize, which are primarily Russian women active prostitutes, and it was okay if the Russian men were the customers. And in Central Asian men became customers, it became a very uh, tenuous proposition. There was a Always very proposal to try and keep some kind of a red light district kind of hidden away from the from the center of the city, but they could never really solve the problem in the end. That was one of the things that you did get a lot of actual information on the were worried about that. Um, what they didn't talk about were um, like children from relationships and like that and marriages, uh, because of the difference between Islam and Christianity. So there was interaction with all of these different levels and uh 
it's, it's something that the women uh, complained about on the one hand that they get few of these scintillations, but certainly they recognize, for example, that scintillations often have the cheapest prices for this kind of food, so that kind of are good, and, and that they really depended on these kinds of uh, issues. Um, so, basically, you say that how did the local population, you know, engage uh, with the Russians? How did they perceive the Russian presence? I mean, a lot of them, they seem to have risen to very high positions in, like, Falando society. Yeah, it was, it's interesting, too, because in the, in the Russian, uh, the Russian city, which was built separately, uh, of course, the boundaries weren't uh, fixed between Russian colonial society or Russian Tashkent and the Asian city of Tashkent. So the local population crossed quite freely into the, the city every day. They worked as business people. Uh, they worked as uh, as engineers. They worked as merchants. Uh, they worked uh, as unskilled labor too. And really, for a lot of them, uh, the Russian city brought a new uh, source of economic vitality. So there was a sense for many Central Asians because the uh, Asian Tashkent doubles in size in the context of the Russian Revolution. And that's because there were more opportunities. But at the same time, you did have cases where Central Asians became uh, very upset at Russian rule. I mean, right about a, a riot, a cholera riot in 1892, and there were some other disturbances then, too. But Central Asians decided were were had adjusted themselves to the fact that Russians were ruling over the region, but they, what they didn't want were Russians interfering with their cultural and religious everyday lives. So Russians telling them uh, when to pray, how to bury their bodies, for example, how uh, how to work, how how to live culturally. So as long as that wasn't uh, wasn't reached this local population, they, they did tend to revolt. But there was always an underlying tension there that pops up from time to time in riots and in, in fights and things like that uh, throughout the imperial period. And then in the Soviet period, you get a massive civil war that goes on, partly as a result of the cotton economy, which has left the region uh, dependent on uh, Russia for food. And there's no food. That's when you start to get the issue of uh, tension wars. And uh, you mentioned the like the East, uh, Eastern European immigrants and maybe the poorer Russian settlers. So they were obviously the third element in this uh, city. Obviously, you mentioned that the Russians had very ambivalent feelings about them. But uh, how did the local populace react to them? Yeah, this is, this is always really interesting. Again, it's another uh, difficulty of looking at the time period here. Is you don't we don't get a lot of voices from the local population in terms of how they reacted day to day. But you do in the archives, and I really dug deep for this, trying to find out uh, how usually for sort of cases of criminal cases. Sometimes you've got testimonies that will tell you how people tended to react when somebody. Uh, brought somebody else to court, but you, you, you've got a sense in, in of shared interest in, in a way, and certainly even in the in World War One, at the beginning of the revolution, you had say Central Asian peasants who were looking for markets to sell their food to, and Russian workers were buying their food. Uh, so it was this uh, react this relationship that was quite um, productive for both sides? But on the other hand, I run across a number of incidents where say. Russian soldiers uh, would go into the Central Asian city, would try to beat up 
potential Asian merchants if they didn't give them food or, or goods or something like that, um, or and you've got Central Asian officials, or so Russian officials who go into the Central Asian town and demand bribes or extra taxes, uh, and there are these sort of daily reactions that show clearly that the Russians had colonial power in the region, therefore uh, the Central Asians always had to, to understand that at any point they could be asked for uh, extra taxes or bribes or could be subject to physical violence. But it, wasn't, it was never really clear to me, again, another question that I, I wish I could have had better sources for, to what extent every day the Central Asians thought about this, that they cursed the Russians every day, that they could accept Russian control as a fact of life. Uh, obviously, different, different Central Asians have had different views on this, but uh, it's, again, when you're dealing with colonial situations, you get so much more uh, evidence from the colonizers than you do colonize. That's one reason why, uh, for my next project, I turned to oral histories and trying to get people to actually talk to me. Uh, I always thought, if I could only talk to these people when they were, uh, when they were alive, I could understand much more than they understood uh, from the archival and speaking research that we did. That's very interesting. Uh, what did you use to, you know, for sources? To tell us something about the source materials you use for the book. Yeah, it was a, it was a multiple uh, search strategy where mm-hmm. one of the reasons I switched really to going earlier in the imperial period was I found the imperial era newspapers were really wonderful sources to, to look at. And you had the official newspaper, Tsukostensky of Yedemosti, or the Tsukostensky Chronicle, which started from the, almost from the conquest, started in the late 1860s and went through right until the revolution. And you started to get increasing numbers of uh, newspapers. And also by, and the Turkestan Chronicle has sort of a, a local language supplement. Well, that tended not to talk too much of the daily life. But after 1905, he started to get newspapers written in the Uzbek language as well. Those were a major source. But I went to various archives, the Central State Archive in Tashkent. Uh, I went to the, the District Archive, the City Archive, um, Film and Photography Archive. And you're almost working like a detective in those archives, trying to figure out which files would be better uh, than others. So I tended to find a lot of information, say, uh, police files with the police uh, were sort of surveying the local population, uh, also in complaints and petitions from the local population to the authority who provide useful files, and then, as I mentioned, these, these riots and disturbances generated often a lot of people from the Darst administration. Uh, and then, in addition, I used uh, urban planning, so architecture, so you could maps and things like that, and sources. There's also a beautiful, a uh, couple of beautiful collections. One of them is uh, the Turkestan album, which is uh, something that Governor General Kaufman compiled with a photographer in 1871, which is about 1,200 photos of Tashkent and, and Turkestan. Uh, so I used photography as a, as a source there as well. And also a Turkestan collection, which is a 500 volume of clippings from newspapers and journals that were, were collected as part of the, the Tashkent Library. Uh, so there are all kinds of beautiful sources to use that uh, I really enjoyed working with, and I think gave a really nice tapestry of Tashkent, notwithstanding the fact that I, I, I missed some of these sort of everyday life things I wish I could have given more. Yeah, that must have been interesting. I mean, going to the sources, but uh, going back uh, to the issue of how the local population perceived the Russians, you know, you mentioned that there is a certain, you know, tension, and you talked about the cholera riot in 1892. 
I mean, that's the sort of recurring theme, you know, when you talk about colonial studies, okay, like, you know, the colonizing power wants to come and take some measures, maybe it was like plague control in India, and the locals don't really like it. Um, why do you think, like, this sort of thing happened? Like, was there a lack of, like, communication between the colonizer and the colonized? I, I think in this case there was. And I think, in fact, uh, colonial up to that point depend, depended on a certain almost uh, planned lack of communication in that before 1892, the, the Russians led the Central Asian sort of elites, notables, rural Asian Tashkent, under certain conditions, of course. They had to provide tax revenue. Um, they had to promise to be loyal. But the, the Russians didn't really get an understanding of what the Asian city was like and what the dynamics were because they ruled it quite indirectly, which was an understandable strategy. It's much cheaper to, to not have to pay administrators just to tell them, okay, we'll, we'll pay some, a few Central Asian notables, but then we'll force them almost to get their salaries back to the taxes they collect. So it was a strategy that, that worked relatively well, and of course one that was duplicated across the colonial world. But the problem was when cholera came, this was something that the Russians decided they couldn't let the Central Asians deal with on their own, because of course cholera is an extremely contagious disease. And so they went in to try and uh, tell the Central Asians what to do, and to try and say, okay, we have these European methods of uh, solving the treated diseases, and we're going to tell you how to uh, take care of your water supply, how to treat your dead, we're going to tell you how to heal your wounded. Uh, and these are things that to the local population were things were areas that the Russians were not supposed to meddle in. They had meddled in even since the uh, And when the Russians, and the Russians were doing this, and, and also at the same time they were telling the situations, do it our way, they're also giving all their funding for, for houses of healing and, and things like that to the Russian city. Uh, so they were, for example, banning the local population from burying their dead until they could be inspected, whether they were infected with the cholera virus or not. But then they didn't send out people to, to inspect them. So for three or four days, they were buying time on the ground. And uh, it was a, a point where Central Asians just thought that they were being, uh, their cultural values were being disrespected. And then Issues like uh, issues of control and colonial power comes up once the population gets uh, very frustrated. Uh, so it's, it's, it showed a lot of different things. It showed this sort of one particular moment that it became frustrating. But when you start to read the, the transcripts of the riot, people did lash out at the Russians overall and said, yeah, these, are the, these are people who are ruling over us, not only with no understanding of the, of the, of the region, but people who don't consider legitimate rulers. Uh, at the same time, Russians always been having military control, uh, slaughtered a number of Central Asians that day, uh, and then later on the, the population does end up settling down. So it shows both the limits and the extent of colonial power in the end. But yes, of course, the Russians really didn't understand, they didn't really want to understand uh, Central Asian society in the Tsar's I mean, you do mention that uh, the incident actually shows how the Russians had to depend on influential Central Asian leaders, you know, to maintain the peace. So I was just wondering, like, whether these leaders, they could, they were actually in a position to, you know, maybe command both sides, you know, like, obviously, they, the Russians thought they were in charge of the local population, and obviously, the local population, maybe they saw them as intermediaries. Yeah, it's a fast, they're, they're a fascinating group, and again, one that I, I wish uh, you could get more of their voices on, so we read and look at their actions as they're interpreted through various various actors, and have to decide 
uh, some of the Russians at the time would call them, uh, would almost be dismissive of them and say, so collaborators, they sold out their own school, even if they're working with us. Um, but when you look at the way that people acted, and there were various numbers of them, some of these Central Asians who became mediators or, or worked with the Russians, they moved to the Russian city, they started to wear Russian clothing, uh, they really just, uh, adapted the Russian uh, sort of European lifestyle, became uh, associated with the Russian elites. But it doesn't necessarily mean that even for these people, they abandoned their own population. They still had close family. Uh, wasn't they? Whenever they sort of worked with the Russians, they would always be very careful to try and let make the Russians understand what Central Asian culture was about. They tell the Russians, okay, here's what you can do, and here's what you can't do. So in 1892, for example, before this cholera riot, many of the Central Asian leaders were going to the Russian uh, administrator saying, uh, you can't tell us to not to bury our dead, or you can't tell us to uh, force us to bury us, bury the dead in graveyards outside of the center of the city, or you can't tell us to, to not use our water in this particular way, because these are are important values to us. And uh, so they they tried in, in very essence to soften the blow colonialism. And there were certainly a number of cases where they tried, for example, to get away, get their own local population to pay less taxes. Uh, they represented the population very well, I think. So it's very difficult to make any kind of moral judgments about these people because they, yes, they were working with the Russians and they associated with the Russians, but uh, you also get a sense that uh, when they tried very hard to cushion the blow of the local population, so it really is a fascinating question. And every every person who works with the Russians, I think, had their own different uh, equation of how they balanced uh, this work with the relationship with their family, with the district, with the neighborhood, uh, or with the, the local population in the city of the world. Um, and I was just wondering uh, how representative was Tashkent of Russian colonial cities as a whole, or at least, you know, Central Asian Russian colonial cities? Yeah, I, I think in the end, um, we had these models in cities across uh, across Turkestan. So, most representative, for example, in Samarkand, we had a sort of Russian city outside the Asian uh, uh, city there. Even in Bukhara, you had a small Russian settlement. And Tashkent really became uh, the administrative capital of this, this a model not just for the further planning, but it really set the tone for the relationships between the Russian population and the Central Asian population. What I'd like to see still even more work being done on it is looking at some of these colonial cities in, in comparison, for example, looking at Tashkent compared to, say, Tbilisi or Vilnius uh, or, or something like that, because I think what you do get is similar... Uh, is to get the Russian administrative military model. In fact, I remember when I was walking to uh, Helsinki not long ago, remind Helsinki, in fact, as a city, reminds me of Tashkent, that they're both a Russian military city on the outposts. They both had a, they both had similar representatives. In fact, you've got people like Hoffman and some of the other governors general. They serve a few years in Tashkent, and they go to uh, to Tiflis or Tbilisi. Uh, then they go to Warsaw. So they had a very similar model, and I think you, you've got, in, 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 in the same sense, a lot of things that were quite unique about the Russian Empire, and the Russians were uh, very uncertain about their relations with the local population. It wasn't a case like in the British case where 
the British were very confident in their superiority. Russians always thought they were a little bit inferior because they were they had this superiority complex to Europe and not boasting sixteen various cities. But I think a lot of work still needs to be done on trying to understand the various models of Russian colonial cities. So, I mean, you mentioned you've done some work on British and French colonialism. So, would you say that, I don't know, British imperial cities were rather more anglicized, you know, more overtly colonial than Russian cities or something? I, yeah, it's, it's, again, it's an interesting question. I don't know if I necessarily uh, make one or other determination. I think the Russians modeled their colonial cities on uh, the British and French. Uh, some of the differences were not just what the Russians did, but it was also what the Central Asians did, as we were mentioning earlier on. The Central Asian population in this case, although I'm sure in many Indian cities, right, you had a very wealthy merchant class uh, and a, a local population that was also intervening in the way that Russian colonial rule was. I think one of the major differences was that the, the Russian anxiety level was higher. And one of the reasons for that was that Russians didn't still really have a sense of, of who they were as Russians. It wasn't really a strong Russian national identity. Uh, so when you had these two Russians coming in as Russian peasants, the Russians are still trying to build this identity after the great reforms as modern European uh, kind of civilizers, uh, people who were not just uh, were not just European colonizers, but in fact sort of more gentle and They always would say, well, the British conquered India very clearly, and there's all these horrible things. We, we treat our populations very nicely, which was, there's a little bit of mythology in that, but uh, they, they had these images of themselves, but then when these two Russians came in, for example, and they had, uh, they were doing alcohol, they were abusing the Central Asian population, and they were trustworthy. Uh, there, there was a, a great deal of, of ambiguity there, and I think the Russians just never were really able to gain a clear sense. They sort of hope when they conquer Tashkent, this will show us what Russians are, because we'll be a strong colonizing people, and their, the experience is very different, and I think that 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 lack of initial certainty in their own national mission uh, led to a greater deal of frustration in creating the British and French cases. Um, coming back to Tashkent, I mean, obviously the city went through a lot of changes in 1905 and then the Great War and then the 1917 Revolution and then finally independence. So how did the dynamics of the city, you know, change and evolve throughout these years? Yeah, uh, change uh, in so many different ways. Uh, you have a city that um, was just a tiny encampment in, in the 1860s to uh, a city by the revolution that was one of the central struggles for uh, the Bolsheviks. I think uh, probably if we were to look to a couple of different points, it really changed the relationship and the, and the sets are related. But um, the, the cotton, of course, the cotton economy was the first to take off in the 1890s and 1900s. It really changed the way that the Russians were uh, looking at the region because all of a sudden there's a profitable good there and you've got a significant amount of Russian migration. And after 1905, too, uh, Russians were encouraging migration to Central Asia. You've got really a massive influx there of Russian settlers and Russian peasants. And so uh, land issues became much more contested. Uh, and that was related to with the Russian railway, which is in fact initially built more for military first to become an economic driver too. So Tashkent becomes much more integrated to the economic life of the empire. Uh, and that's why when the Bolsheviks come to power in 1917, Central Asia is a long way away from Moscow and St. Petersburg. In fact, uh, in the Civil War, 
Tashkent and Turkestan were cut off completely from central Russia, so you would think that perhaps the Bolsheviks might just let it go because they had bigger problems. But the cotton economy was so important for central Russia because, for example, cotton in Tashkent and in Uzbekistan was, was necessary to keep the factories in Moscow. So they had to reconquer it. Of course, what you then had was a, a whole different generation of rulers, which were the railway workers who arrived in 1905, 1900, who moved to the Tashkent Soviet, and they had their own conflict population as well. That a Central Asian population has become uh, far more diverse. Uh, you have movements, liberal intellectual movements that were educated in the time period as well. So there are so many different changes in, in the time period that I was dealing with. But those are some of the key turning points. Um, so how did the you know, ultimate like Soviet withdrawal from Tashkent affect the city in the sense that it created a power vacuum at the top or something? It did create a power vacuum, and it, it, it came at a, certain, at a time period where there was uh, famine in the region, um, and part of this was, was the cause of the fact that cotton was highly developed was, uh, when so, there was so much land in order to cotton, there was sort of a famine, and this was already cut off in Europe. Russia, the Tashkent had been dependent on food from Russia since about 1905, uh, and then after this time, without the food there, ethnic relations had become far more strained. Uh, but it was also related to the fact that once the 1917 revolution came, without central power, the local Central Asian population, which had become uh, far more assertive in its desire for political power, also made claims to the region. They said, well, now that the Darst Empire is gone, real, uh, we should be the rightful inheritors of political power. So you had a, an all-out struggle in this power vacuum between the Tashkent Soviet Union, railway workers, and the so-called Kofan Autonomy, which is a uh, uh, government set up in Kokon by a number of Central Asian um, nationalists, various types of Muslims to uh, Muslim clerics to the liberal Jadids, Muslims to the more progressive in outlook. Uh, and in fact, both of them sent telegrams to Moscow after the revolution. Uh, demanding that they be supported. Uh, Central Asian would say, well, we're the exploited peoples of the region, you should support us. The Russian workers say, well, we're the, the class, uh, we're the working class, you should support us. And uh, I remember getting, seeing a telegram from Stalin saying, well, you guys just sort of fight it out and tell me to win. And at this time, about tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, a combination of famine and uh, violence at this time. So, uh, over a decade, so how do uh, modern Tashkent, I don't know, civic leaders view the colonial legacy? I mean, what's the colonial legacy like in terms of maybe, I don't know, expat industrial houses or even, you know, the physical structure, the architecture, the buildings? Right. The colonial architecture, colonialism remains uh, a hallmark in many ways. I think obviously the, the cotton uh, economy that was put back in place by the Soviets remains one of the, the most important legacies because what's happened now is even though the region is independent, they've continued that economic model of just growing cotton, not just because being a major export good. Uh, and that has led to uh, Really, I think a continuation of this big divide between the elites and the poor populations, the people who control the resources, even though now they're Uzbeks instead of Russians, uh, and the population is working on That's one of the issues today. Um, it's interesting in terms of the architecture because uh, the 
the colonial architecture really maintained itself until the earthquakes of Tashkent in the late 1960s. And after that, the city was rebuilt again in a very different style. But it's still uh, and, and very European, it's built in sort of a more modern Soviet sense. So the idea that Tashkent was a city that was going to be very modern, it's going to be sort of a model for that part of Central Asia and the colonial world, still uh, has a hallmark. And even now, I remember when I was there in the late, 19, in the late 1990s, with independent Uzbekistan, I thought, well, there are bits and pieces of old Asian city. I was hoping that the Uzbek government would kind of restore them as um, hallmarks of, of what Asian Tashkent used to be like and what the, the Uzbek sort of national heritage was. But instead, they destroyed them to many ways of modern, sort of European office buildings, uh, which was a real shame. But uh, there is also a, a museum of repression now in Tashkent, so the Uzbek government, they, they portrayed the Tsarist uh, era as, as one where the Uzbek population was um, severely uh, repressed, uh, but at the same time, these colonial legacies continue to, to function very clearly in Tashkent today. Um, that was very interesting, and uh, thank you for doing for the new book network. So, where do you think your future research would take you? This being Russian Central Asia, what are you currently working on? You know, like, and actually, so I, I'm taking my research in a sense the opposite direction now. When I was looking at this project, that Russian uh, colonialism and Russian settlers going to Central Asia, what, I'm, what I've been working on for the last few years has been looking at. Uh, Central Asian diaspora who went to Russia, primarily Moscow and Leningrad, and suspected project looks at the uh, post-World War II period, and looking as well at some of the Caucasus migrants too. So people from uh, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, uh, Azerbaijan, who lived and worked in, in Moscow and Leningrad in the in the late Soviet period. And this was inspired by the first time I went to Moscow, which was 1992, and I'd always thought of Moscow would be a Russian city, but you saw tens of thousands of people from the Caucasus in Central Asia, Africa, China. Uh, Moscow is a true multi-ethnic city. So I really wanted to get a sense of, of how these population dynamics work then uh, in the Russian heartland, unlike when I was looking at the Central Asian heartland. And as I said, because I'm looking at a more recent period, I can do oral histories. And that's been a lot of fun for me to do to try and get some of these uh, resources that uh, I wish I could have had when I was looking at my uh, Tashkent project uh, earlier on. Um, that sounds uh, fascinating. And uh, do let us know when your next work comes out. And uh, thank you for doing this for the New Books Network. It's a pleasure having had you on board. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. I enjoyed uh, very much talking about my book. So, Fox. A great talk that takes us right back to Kaufman's times. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Goodbye.